North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's getting $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Dr. Low Radio, where you hear the best in natural medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Lauren Noel, and I'm so glad you could join me. I know I sound really excited right now, and it's because I'm literally on cloud nine. I had the most amazing weekend. Actually, the last, the most amazing Monday, I should say. I just make my own weekend. I just got back from a trip to L.A. I really needed some quality girl time, which I definitely got. My amazing girlfriends, Jenna Phillips and Evelyn Lambrick. So thanks, girls, for totally rocking my world. If you missed last week's show, I was honored to have Dr. Tom as a guest. We were discussing natural uh, medicine for chronic disease. And natural medicine isn't only good for prevention. It's a very important component of any disease treatment so definitely check out the show if you missed it next week's show is one that you won't want to miss as well where we'll be discussing an incredibly common condition that probably all of us know someone who has been affected with Um, dr lise alshuler will be joining me to discuss naturopathic treatment and prevention of cancer so tell your friends and family tune in definitely an important topic i've had a lot of people ask me if my show is on itunes and the answer is almost It should be just a few more days for the show to become a podcast, so keep a lookout for that. One thing I haven't announced on previous segments that is going to be very big in the next few months, and this is The Run. This is an event that's going to be put on by a naturopathic doctor who is running from San Francisco to Connecticut to create publicity and spread awareness for naturopathic medicine in the United States. He's running over 3,000 miles. So I'm glad he's running it and not me. But if you'd like to be involved, donate, learn more, whatever, check out therun.org. Definitely a very exciting and history-making event. If you are in the San Diego area, that's where I practice. Uh, If you'd like to check out the the clinic website, it's alvaradoskin.com. That's where I'm currently accepting patients. If you'd like to make an appointment, 619-236-0372. If you're not in the San Diego area, I do work with distant patients throughout the U.S. and internationally, so shoot me an email. I might totally regret doing this, but drlaurennoel at gmail.com, drlaurennoel at gmail.com to learn more. All right, enough of announcements. Let's get to the show. Tonight we will be discussing a condition that you may not be familiar with but is actually way more common than most of us think, and many of you may have it right now and not know it. This is a condition that is called fatty liver disease, and we'll be learning all about it tonight. Uh, Before I forget, the number to call in to ask a question is 818-495-6919. Joining me tonight is a woman who I greatly admire. She is an expert in this condition that I just introduced. Um, She's a doctor who has been a pioneer in naturopathic medicine. She's a writer, a widely respected authority on natural medicine, and a genuinely wonderful woman. Dr. Lynn Patrick is on the show tonight. Dr. Patrick graduated from Bastyr University in 1984 with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. Throughout her career thus far, she has accomplished many things. She's had a practice in family medicine with an emphasis in chronic hepatitis C, eating disorders, and treatment of drug, alcohol, and nicotine addiction. She's been the medical director of Mirasol, an inpatient eating disorder facility in Tucson, Arizona. She's also a past physician member of the Hepatitis C Ambassadors team. She's a published author of numerous articles, 
in peer-reviewed medical journals and is a contributing editor for the Alternative Medicine Review, which is one of my favorite medical journals. She's currently on faculty at the Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine. And where I had the opportunity to get to know Dr. Patrick is through a wonderful organization called ACAM. That's the American College for Advancement in Medicine, and she is on faculty for them currently. Dr. Patrick now lives in Durango, Colorado, where she has her practice, and one of her specialties is in environmental medicine, which we'll be definitely discussing today and its relationship to this condition. The coolest part of this whole bio, in my opinion, is that Dr. Patrick is an organic farmer on an urban farm in Mancos, Colorado, where she grows Chinese herbs, fruits, and vegetables. She also practices and believes in the healing benefits of meditation and yoga, open water kayaking, road biking, and mountain climbing. So definitely many interests for sure. Let me go ahead and bring Dr. Patrick on the air. Dr. Patrick, are you there? I am. Hi, Dr. Noel. How are Hello. you? Hello. I'm doing fabulous. Thank you so much for joining me. So good to hear from you. Oh, I don't think I've ever had uh, quite as effulgent an introduction as that. Thank you very much. Well, you much. deserve it. You deserve every bit of it. I've I've been such a huge fan, and, you know, being involved with ACAM and just seeing how much you've done for the profession, it's just it's really inspiring. So it's it's really an honor to have you on the show. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, good. I'm glad you are. How is it out there in beautiful Colorado? Um, it's pretty dry right now. The snow's melted, and everybody's getting in their kayaks and getting mm-hmm. on the water and getting back on their bikes. So, um, you know, we can't wait for spring. Yeah, I hear you. I've, I've I lived in Colorado for many years. So, actually, not not many years, but you know, through high school, and I love it out there. I always have a huge piece of my heart there. So, hopefully, we'll be visiting family pretty soon. So, yeah. So, Dr. Patrick, I wanted to ask you, which is the obligatory question for all the guests, what's your journey been like and, you know, what inspired you to choose this career path that you did? Um, It's a fascinating story. I'll just go through it really briefly. Um, I went to a state college for my undergraduate, and it was kind of a unique college. The name of the college is Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, which is just south of Seattle. And in those days, and I'm not going to date myself by telling you when it was, but I'll just say it was a long time ago, uh, the the college actually had a program whereby you could pick your faculty. And um, I was in the library. I was looking through, believe it or not, Prevention Magazine, and I saw this really interesting character uh, whose name was Jeffrey Bland, and he had just published an article on vitamin E, and lo and behold, he was teaching at a private school uh, just about um, an hour south of where we were, and um, my classmate and I decided we would write him a letter and ask him if he wanted to teach um, teach at Evergreen. He responded very enthusiastically. We hired him as our professor, and... Um, For those of you who don't know who Jeffrey Bland is, he's one of the leading authorities in uh, what's called functional medicine, which is a form of integrative medicine looking at uh, nutrition as a main uh, form of therapy. He's uh, known internationally both as a researcher and an author, and I was privileged to have him as my undergraduate professor for pre-med, which was, now that I look back on it, I can't believe how lucky I was. Yeah. Uh, so I was a senior, and um, he uh, sat me down one day and told me that he thought I should go to medical school, whereupon I told him he was crazy, and I had no intention of doing that. But by the time the semester was over, um, 
he specifically wanted me to go to naturopathic medical school um, because even though his pre-med had been um, in regular medical school, he was um, he was very impressed with Bastyr University at that time. And so I ended up, um, thanks to his tutelage and his guidance, um, enrolling in naturopathic medical school, still not quite sure that I wanted to be a doctor, but by the time I graduated, I was completely convinced that naturopathic medicine was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So that's the story. Wow. Dr. Jeffrey Bland has been definitely inspirational. I heard him speak at ACAM, and I was just like, wow, this guy is amazing. I'd love to have him on the show as well. Yeah, and didn't he uh, really pioneer this epigenetics movement with seeing how nutrition he's, affects he's our genes? A, yeah, he's been a pioneer in a lot of different areas of medicine, but actually looking at um, small changes in our genetic makeup that predispose us to certain chronic diseases. He was one of the pioneers in really bringing that, <laughs> excuse me, bringing that into clinical medicine. Um, uh, the organization he works with, uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine, is actually one of the main organizations that helps train physicians to look more holistically at patient care. Um, and so I was really very fortunate to get in on the ground level um, almost 30 years ago now. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow, that's a cool story. So uh, we all have such different stories on how we got to where we are, but it's it's like the profession chooses you. So yeah, it's totally meant to be. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So let's jump into it. Let's start with the basics, though. Um, you know, we're going to be talking about fatty liver disease and what that really entails tonight. But um, just to start with the basics for those uh, listeners who aren't, you know, real familiar on the, the physiology of the liver. So what is the function of the liver? Well, the liver is. Uh, uh you know, I think I can generalize, um, but it is a true generalization that the liver is the hardest working organ of the entire body. The liver manufactures hormones. The liver manufactures a lot of proteins. Um, one of the proteins that the liver manufactures is a protein that helps white blood cells mature. Um, that's, you know, not a well-known fact. It's kind of an obscure fact. But it's important for people who have chronic hepatitis uh, because they can uh, lose their ability to make white blood cells, which then puts them at risk for infection. So uh, the other thing the liver does, in addition to becoming to being basically uh, a production center of the body, is that the liver has the ability of breaking down um, hormones and chemicals that we take in from our environment, uh, things that are nasty like solvents, uh, heavy metals, pesticides, um, and metabolizing them so that they can be excreted through the kidneys or into the intestines and through the colon, through the intestinal tract. <laughs> now, that particular job of the liver is really, I think, not given its due, or it, you know, it's not the liver's not really given enough credit for being the main organ in the body that helps us detoxify. I think there's a general knowledge that the liver's involved somehow in detoxification, but the liver is responsible pretty much 100% for that process. The kidneys do contribute. Um, there are some drugs that are broken down. Uh, mostly by the kidneys, 
But in general, the liver does carry the lion's share of that work. And so what we're going to be talking about tonight is what happens when the liver loses its ability to do that. And uh, the condition that I'm going to be talking about, uh, fatty liver disease, which is epidemic in this culture. Um, There are different um, percentages that are thrown around in different studies, but it is generally agreed upon that 30% of the adult population, so we're talking about one out of three people, has fatty liver disease. Now, how how many people actually know that they have fatty liver disease? It's a very insignificant percentage of that 30%, you know, of the people that are diagnosed. Right now we're looking at, in some populations, 5 or 10% of, of that group of people actually know that they have fatty liver disease. Um, unfortunately, um, the ability to diagnose and treat this disease has not caught up with standard medicine. And so for the most part, it's, 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 a, it's an easy disease to treat, to treat uh, if people are willing to change their lifestyle, change their diet and exercise, and we'll talk about that uh, quite a bit. <clears throat> but the conundrum or the problem is that if you go to your physician and you have an elevated uh, what's called a liver enzyme, that's part of the machinery of the liver that works very hard to break down and detoxify drugs, alcohol, Um, and by drugs I'm not just talking about um, recreational drugs, but prescription drugs, Uh, and some of the chemicals that we're exposed to, like I said before, just in everyday living. If that enzyme is elevated, most commonly what a, a family practice doc will do is to say, well, this happens, you know, often. Um, it may be due to, oh, the medication that you're on, <coughs> excuse me, or uh, if you, you know, went to a party last night, we'll just watch it and, you know, why don't you come back six months later and we'll check that liver enzyme again. Well, more often than not, six months can go by and, uh, you know, if you're a patient, you know, who has been to your doc and the doc said it's not a big deal, you're not going to take it very seriously, and you might miss that six-month checkup. And the clinic may be very busy, and they may forget to call you, or you may cancel your appointment and not reschedule. Uh, And it will just be something that, you know, uh, will be in your chart, but not necessarily followed up on. Uh, The problem is that if you go back to your physician, your health care provider, and you get that test rechecked and it's elevated again, what needs to be done is that your doctor needs to find out why that enzyme is elevated. Now, there are a lot of reasons why, and this is where um, it's really important to have a physician who's willing to um, take that next step and figure out why that liver enzyme, it's called ALT, it's a very common liver enzyme, it's checked Every time you go in for a physical or when you go to get blood work, that enzyme is checked. Uh, But it is absolutely important and appropriate to find out why that enzyme is elevated because the main reason that that enzyme would be elevated outside of the things that I just mentioned, you know, drugs and alcohol, 
prescription drugs is fatty liver disease. Fatty liver disease is the most common cause in the United States of chronically elevated liver enzymes. The problem is, you know, if this were just a benign condition and we all had a little fat that accumulated in our liver, it wouldn't be a big deal. The problem is that we're talking about 30 million people in this country. And out of that 30 million, 9 million of them, it's a little less than that, it's about 8.7 million, will go on to get serious liver disease. And by serious liver disease, I mean cirrhosis. And uh, cirrhosis is a condition where the liver uh, is filled with scar tissue. And the liver is, you know, to get back to the the general kind of uh, physiology of the liver, if you actually held uh, a liver in your hand, which very few of you probably will ever get to do, <laughs> but <laughs> if you did, or if you watch TV, I'm sure you'll see, uh, the liver is just like a big sponge. And the way that blood flows through the liver is in very, very small blood vessels. And when scar tissue starts to accumulate in the liver and those blood vessels can no longer carry blood, the liver actually becomes um, uh, very hard. You know, it's a very soft organ. Um, and it becomes very hard and full of scar tissue and can no longer carry blood and loses its ability to do all those jobs that the liver does. So cirrhosis uh, can be fatal. And in fact, when uh, somebody gets cirrhosis, their likelihood of dying in 7 to 10 years is as high as 25%. So a 1 in 4 chance of dying in 10 years is not a good prognosis. And especially because fatty liver disease can be turned around. You know, it's not like having um, a chronic viral infection, which is hard to treat, like chronic hepatitis C or HIV. Um, fatty liver disease can be completely turned around. The problem is that we don't do a good enough job of diagnosing it. So that really, I think, Lauren, one of the great things that you're doing for everybody out there is raising awareness about the fact that this is an epidemic in the United States. Um, a lot of physicians and researchers, especially the hepatologists that I work with, are extremely concerned about this. The fact that it's not being diagnosed often enough or frequently enough and that the treatment uh, often entails some pretty in-depth counseling about diet and exercise that a lot of primary care doctors, you know, it's not their fault. They don't have adequate time to provide that level of counseling. And so treatment is very often inadequate. So right. um, I'll stop there, and you can, you know, you can uh, let me know what else you think might be important for your audience to know out there. Sure. I'm sure the question that's in the mind of the listener is, okay, well, I obviously don't want to get this condition, or if I already, you know, started to get it, maybe they're curious, what leads to this, um, you know, fatty liver disease? What what leads to this besides, um, you, you know, you, you mentioned that ALT is the, the test that has um, increased, uh, you know, different medications and alcohol, but fatty liver the d disease is the main uh, reason to raise that liver enzyme. So what leads to fatty liver disease? Well, actually, believe it or not, there's a tremendous amount of research in in the good old medical literature looking at 
a type of sugar called fructose. Fructose is the sugar that comes from fruit. And we've been eating fructose, you know, ever since we were, you know, still on four legs. You know, uh, primates and early humans ate fructose, but in limited quantities. And starting about in 1976 or 1979, somewhere in that area, the food supply started to become uh, full of something called high fructose corn syrup, which is actually not a sugar, believe it or not. It's, it's um, a form of corn sweetener that is uh, chemically manipulated, so it's actually more like an alcohol. But it's very common. Um, about half of all food that's sweetened right now is sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. Uh, it's in uh, soda. That's Beverages are the most common uh, source of high fructose corn syrup. Almost uh, all, I'm going to say it's about 80% of high fructose corn syrup goes into beverages as a sweetener in most uh, sodas or um, iced teas that are on the market uh, today are sweetened with high fructose corn syrup. Now, in studies, particularly in animal studies, if you feed an animal high fructose corn syrup, um, that animal will get fatty liver disease. It's a guaranteed way in rat studies to cause fatty liver disease in rats. And this is well known and well understood in um, the hepatology research. There aren't any hepatologists out there that will disagree that fructose isn't the cause of fatty liver disease. The problem is that in our culture today, we eat about 141 pounds of sweetener per year. That's the average. And um, Dr. Noel and I, I know we don't eat 140 pounds of sweetener a year, so somebody out there is eating, you know, our 140 pounds. Does chocolate count? <laughs> Yeah, and unfortunately, the majority of high fructose corn syrup is eaten by 12 to 18-year-old kids. Mm -hmm. They eat about 70 grams a day. Um, that's a lot. In the, in the studies, the equivalent of about 25 grams a day is where you start seeing the beginning of fatty liver disease. So it doesn't take a lot of high fructose corn syrup to initiate fatty liver disease. Um, there are, you know, a lot of hidden sugars out there um, in in the marketplace and in restaurants. Um, one of the slides that I show in my presentations for physicians is uh, something called the worst frozen mocha in the United States, and it's actually a frozen mocha that's sold in a restaurant, um, and uh, there's no information given. You know, you wouldn't know that this frozen mocha has 240 grams of sugar in it, um, wow. but it does. And um, There are actually lots of beverages that have really high amounts of sugar in them. Um, in a... <laughs> In New York City, the health department now has put ads on television and on the buses and in the subways about how easy it is for New Yorkers to eat 93 packets 
equivalent of sugar a day just oh in God. having about four to six uh, beverages a day, you know, two sodas, um, a frozen mocha, and a couple of other uh, sugar-sweetened beverages. And um, the, the the health department's been given a lot of flack because they show this ad and the contents of the, you know, what you'd have to drink in order to get 93 packets of sugar. And then they switch to a diabetic who has um, a condition uh, that is common in end-stage diabetes where the um, fingers and toes don't get blood, adequate blood supply, and they get gangrene. So apparently, you know, and, and I think it's probably really that because there is an epidemic of diabetes in this country, and by the way, if you're diabetic, you're more likely to have fatty liver disease um, as well as being overweight. A much higher percentage of people who are overweight or who are diabetic have fatty liver disease. You don't have to be overweight and you don't have to be diabetic, but it certainly increases the risk. So I think that diet is a really big part, but it's not the only risk. Um, I would say that there are probably situations where without eating a lot of sugar, uh, someone may also be at risk for fatty liver disease. There's some research that's come out of the University of Louisville in Kentucky um, by a wonderful hepatologist uh, named Dr. Matthew Cave. And Dr. Matt Cave, who has spoken, <laughs> excuse me, who's spoken at uh, some events that you and I have been at, uh, some physicians' conferences, uh, did some research um, with uh, something called the NHANES database. Um, NHANES is an acronym for National Health and Nutrition Education Survey, and every few years, the Center for Disease Control, which is the uh, big federal government research branch of uh, the public health uh, research area, goes out into the public and finds uh, upwards of four to 6,000 people, takes their blood, collects urine, and measures in these people uh, probably upwards of now of about 200 uh, chemicals, um, including pesticides and heavy metals, as well as looking at their general health. And this has been going on now for several decades, and so we've amassed a fair amount of data on a very large part of the United States population. What Dr. Cave found, this is very interesting, is he was trying to figure out, is there a relationship between, be, between all these chemicals that the federal government is measuring and levels of elevated liver enzymes? And what he found is fascinating. Um, he did his research very carefully, and he controlled for things like diabetes and smoking and high blood pressure and uh, the amount of salt in the diet and all kinds of things that, that might have contributed to those elevated liver enzymes. What he found is that there are several things in the environment that very, very closely correlated with an elevated ALT, which is the liver enzyme that we're concerned about in fatty liver disease. 
And those environmental chemicals were um, a specific class of pesticides called organochlorinated pesticides, um, toxic metals, uh, lead, and mercury, and an environmental chemical called a PCB, and that's short for polychlorinated biphenyl. And the importance of that particular chemical is that it was taken off the market, it was taken out of production in, uh, several decades ago because it was found to be carcinogenic. But that's one of the chemicals that's now found in the fat of polar bears today um, because it has migrated all over the planet. It's a, it's a fat based chemical, so it gets stored in the fat of the polar bears as well as our fat. And it's found uh, basically in the soil, in the water, and in fairly high levels in uh, dairy products uh, and eggs, you know, foods that we eat. So what Dr. K found is that there was a very close correlation between the amount of these chemicals in the blood and the urine of the people in the NHANES database and their risk for having elevated ALTs. Now, the other thing, as I mentioned before, that can cause an elevated ALT is alcohol. Alcohol is very good at raising liver enzymes. Um, so what Dr. Cave did is he took all the people that drank um, a significant amount, and I'm going to talk about what that is because I think that's important. He took them out of the study. So if you uh, are a hepatologist, just imagine everybody out there in radio land that, that you uh, are a doctor and you specialize in, in the diseases of the liver. Um, you know that where we, where we make the cutoff for how much alcohol is harmful uh, is uh, not very much. It's one and a half drinks a day for a woman and two drinks a day for a man. So we're talking about... Um, 20 ounces of beer, 5 ounces of wine, a shot of hard liquor, um, over that amount, uh, there's a specific type of fatty liver disease that you can get as well. It's just called alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, but the epidemic that I'm talking about is actually called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, meaning you don't have to drink to get this disease. If now, you do drink... If it, yeah, so I was going to ask, if a person does have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, should they not drink, or does it not that's, tend to, that's yeah? Excellent, that's an excellent question. What we know, this is true in chronic hepatitis C, another epidemic that's way underdiagnosed. Um, it's true in HIV infection as well. Um, and it's true in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, what we're talking about, the epidemic that affects uh, 30% of the adult population, is that alcohol causes the deposition of fat in the liver. So if you have fatty liver disease and you drink, you'll accelerate the progression of, of your condition and you may actually increase the risk of having complications, which would be cirrhosis and, and all the complications of uh, progressed liver disease. So what we tell our patients is not that they can never drink again, because we don't know that, but for the period that they're going to get treatment, for us to try and really turn this around, they'll be working against themselves if they drink. They'll be 
really um, <coughs> throwing fuel on the fire, so to speak, you know, throwing gasoline on the fire. And once we explain that to them and explain how alcohol really uh, accelerates liver damage, really fuels the fire, uh, most people are willing to go through a period of um, abstaining from alcohol. Um, alcohol uh, is addictive. It is a drug. Um, some people need help to curtail their intake. Um, knowing and understanding that uh, is uh, probably the biggest part of that problem. But from the doctor's point of view, it's a really important part of treatment. Uh, we don't know because there haven't really been that many good studies showing that a little tiny bit of alcohol does or doesn't accelerate the problem. In other words, we don't know what's a safe amount. Yeah, you know, we can't really, we can't get assurance. Well, if you only have a drink a week, you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Possibly, but there's no proof. So the safest thing to do is to ask people to go through a period of alcohol abstinence to see if we can get their liver enzymes back down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back you know, to what you mentioned earlier. Um, you were talking about how toxins play a part in the development of uh, the fatty liver disease. Now, is it which one comes first? Is it that the liver accumulates fat as a protective mechanism, or is it that the, the toxins sort of cause this? Or, you know, it, which, which one goes first? And how does that happen? How does it actually change the composition of the liver? Here's what happens. Um, there are little uh, chemicals that occur naturally in our bodies as a result of good old enzymatic reactions that happen, and particularly with infections. These little chemicals are called free radicals. Very often they're little electrons that are bouncing around, and they cause damage. They can cause genetic damage. They can cause damage to proteins. They can initiate scar tissue in the liver. Now, the body has a system we've evolved with to be able to prevent free radicals from damaging tissue or damaging um, uh, chemical uh, processes, enzymatic processes. And this system is uh, called the antioxidant defense system. So things that everybody's familiar with, like vitamin C, vitamin E, vitamin A, zinc and selenium, some botanicals actually work as uh, antioxidants as well. These substances will prevent damage from these free radicals. So uh, free radicals are caused, the reason I bring up this subject is free radicals are caused by... Uh, toxic metals, particularly lead and uh, mercury, how they do their damage in the body <clears throat> is in many ways, but one of the ways is by uh, increasing the amount of free radicals, particularly in the liver. And so there are actually some pretty good studies uh, in the medical literature with vitamin C and vitamin E, very simple, inexpensive supplements, in people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease showing that just those antioxidants will actually decrease the amount of scar tissue in the liver. And these are actually studies where they did liver biopsies, gave uh, the patients in the study these antioxidants, and then looked again at their liver tissue six months to 12 months later to um, look at whether or not the antioxidants 
changed the actual structure of the scar tissue in the liver. And what they found was that the, the uh, fibrosis is the name of the scar tissue, what we call the scar tissue. The amount of fibrosis in the liver biopsies was actually reduced. Now, these studies haven't been done in large populations, but they really do get at what the mechanism is. And, and the mechanism in particularly uh, toxic metals, and, and I, I don't think we know enough about pesticides and PCBs to say that, but for sure we know it with toxic metals is that it causes free radical damage in the liver tissue itself. Okay. Does that and, make and sense? How, it does make sense, that, yeah. For for people concerned if this could be something affecting them, how uh, wh what are some uh, common sources of, of toxic metals and how can they decrease that, that risk? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, what we know particularly about the toxic metal mercury is that we're exposed to it through amalgam fillings. Um, that's actually uh, pretty well known. Amalgam fillings when they're newly put into the mouth. But over time, they, the amalgam is a kind of a soft metal, a mercury filling, um, is basically what I'm talking about. And that mercury filling actually vaporizes, particularly with chewing um, and uh, pressure uh, and heat. And that vaporized mercury is absorbed into uh, the lungs and goes into the bloodstream. Uh, the other way that we're exposed to mercury is through diet. Uh, there's a fair amount of mercury in large ocean fish, like uh, swordfish is really high in mercury, shark is high in mercury, uh, tuna has a fair amount of mercury in it. Um, unfortunately, we have um, poisoned our oceans as well as our freshwater streams and, and lakes. And so we're now found finding... Um, increasing amounts of mercury in uh, fish that inhabit um, freshwater lakes and streams. So even though <laughs> fish does have a lot of nutrition, it's really high in those great omega-3 fatty acids, eating fish that are high on the food chain is not uh, safe, particularly for women who are pregnant because uh, the, um, the placenta and um, the fetus can accumulate mercury. So um, those are the two main sources of mercury. Um, we actually published a study two years ago looking at uh, mercury in high fructose corn syrup, the process of making high fructose corn syrup uh, in some systems, not all, but in some systems in the United States necessitates the use of mercury and we analyzed the high fructose corn syrup and actually found that there was um, a concerning amount of mercury in the samples of high fructose corn syrup. And we then went uh, to a supermarket. Um, this was done by Dr. Walinga um, of the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. His group actually went to the supermarket and took about um, <clears throat> 50 items off the shelf that had high fructose corn syrup as an ingredient and he found um, significant amounts of mercury in those food items. So we do get mercury in our diet if we eat high fructose corn syrup in places other than fish. As far as lead goes, which is the other toxic metal that Dr. K found 
to be correlated with um, elevations in ALT. Um, lead has been around for a long time in our environment. Um, lead is much more toxic to children. Uh, they accumulate much more through their GI tract, you know, through their intestinal tract than we do as adults. Um, and so it is, uh, it is necessary if you're a physician and you're seeing a, a child on Medicare, it's a part of your job to measure their blood lead levels. But in terms of where we get lead, um, lead is in dust, basically, particularly in old homes that uh, were around before 1978 when lead was still 50% of paint. Um, so the, the dust in the home might contain lead. Um, lead has been found to be used in uh, mini blinds that were imported from Mexico prior to the early 90s. So we actually have cases of children who have acute lead poisoning from the dust that comes off of those mini blinds. Um, they're not currently being imported, um, but historically they were found to be very high in lead, particularly if they were uh, manufactured in Mexico. We know, too, that a lot of toys now um, that have been manufactured in China, um, even though we now do, the United States does, um, prohibit the importing of uh, lead-based toys from China. Um, those products did sneak into the United States up until a few years ago, and there actually have been some some cases of death from uh, from swallowing those particular um, small items like jewelry. But in terms of uh, where uh, where an average person might accumulate lead, um, lead is found in um, certain imported wines. Um, it's found uh, in in uh, certain medications. It was just a study that came out. Uh, a year ago, looking at lead in certain prescription medications, it can contaminate vitamins. Um, it is certainly something that you're exposed to if you're in an, in an occupation where there's any welding. And that's one of the most common things I see in my practice is if somebody's been uh, in an occupation where they've been around construction, um, those people are most are most likely to be lead toxic, um, people who are uh, in the construction industry because of their exposure to lead on the job. Mm. So those yeah, are, the, those are just the most common, not certainly inclusive of all the possible ways to get exposed. Those are just the most common ways to get exposed. Sure. And so if you're say, older, go ahead. I was going to say, so let's say, let's say there's a, a patient who, you know, knows that they've had this exposure, can see how they've had, you know, high fructose corn syrup in their diet, they're wondering if maybe this is something that they could be dealing with, you know, having this fatty liver disease. They go to their doctor. Um, you know, what are the, the signs and symptoms that they might have this condition, if there are any, and then and what can be done, um, you know, with natural medicine to, um, to treat this condition? Well, as I mentioned, having fatty liver disease in and of itself isn't dangerous. In other words, you can have a certain amount of fat in your liver, and your liver can still function. It's when the disease starts to progress and the liver starts to lose its ability to do its job and scar tissue is deposited in the liver, that's when it gets dangerous. That particular um, progressed 
version of fatty liver disease actually has its own name. The acronym is NASH, and it stands for Non-Alcoholic Steatotic Hepatitis. It's just a fancy word for hepatitis. So it really is what you want to avoid. So if you uh, think that there's a possibility that you might have fatty liver disease and you want to find out, the simplest and easiest way is to go to your physician and get your liver enzymes measured. Um, that's a very inexpensive test. In our clinic, it's, um, you know, liver enzymes would probably cost uh, the patient about $30 out of pocket if it's not covered by their insurance. What range do you like to see with that, and when do you start to wonder if, if fatty liver could be an issue with them? Well, there are there are um, reference ranges that I've learned in hepatology that apply specifically to uh, the most sensitive way to rule out fatty liver disease. So in other words, uh, if you um, ever look at uh, lab results, you'll see that there's a little reference range over to the side, and that's what doctors use to figure out if the lab test is within the normal reference range or not. Unfortunately, for the liver enzyme ALT, hepatologists use a different reference range than the rest of medicine, and the hepatologists that I've worked with have been trying, as have all hepatologists, to get that reference range changed for the last 20 years. Unfortunately, in medicine, as in many other parts of life, things change slowly. So if you're a hepatologist and you're trying to figure out what a normal, healthy liver enzyme level is for an ALT, that specific liver enzyme, in a female, it's 19 or under. In a male, it's 30 or under. Now, if you're a family uh, care doc, if you're a, a family medicine doc, you might use the, the reference range that the lab provides. Unfortunately, it's not sensitive enough to rule out fatty liver disease. So the hepatologist that I've learned from, uh, who I greatly respect, uh, who are research hepatologists, have taught me that a healthy ALT in a female is 19 or under, and in a male it's 30 or under, and so those really should be the reference ranges that we use in determining what healthy is. Because not only are you more at risk if that ALT is elevated for fatty liver disease, you're more at risk for other diseases as well. Uh, there are a whole bunch of studies looking at ALT ranges. And the higher the ALT range, the more likely you are, the higher your ALT level, excuse me, the more likely you are to be uh, overweight and at risk for diabetes. And so we really do want to exclude those diseases or those conditions as healthy. You know, we don't want to have diabetes and consider that health um, or be uh, seriously overweight and consider that health. So even though using this reference range that I just talked about, 19 or under for a female or 30 or under for a male, certainly is going to put a greater percentage of people in America in that category of, you know, potentially at risk for those other diseases and you know, is going to necessitate that our healthcare system pays better attention. It's a much more sensitive way to stop 
this epidemic of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because those folks will then have the opportunity and the ability to prevent themselves from getting serious liver disease. And one of the things that I haven't talked about, <laughs> excuse me, but I think is really important is that in studies with people who have fatty liver disease, if they lose as little as a pound a week, their liver biopsy improves. And they've actually done this with people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. If they start exercising and, you know, they don't have to diet, they just have to eat moderately healthy, um, probably cut out high fructose corn syrup and sugar from their diet and um, unnecessary unhealthy fats like trans fatty acids, which I forgot to mention that trans fats are also a cause of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That's been shown in animal models. Um, so doing those two things and losing, you know, a, a, a small amount of weight. You know, in the, in the studies, we're really only talking about, you know, 5 to 7% of total body weight um, and a pound a week, no more than that. Uh, and exercising can completely, you know, and this has been shown in studies, reverse the process of fatty liver disease. So in case, Lauren, your uh, listeners don't know what trans fatty acids are, they're fats that are um, manufactured. So margarine would be probably the best example of a trans fat. They've been outlawed in restaurants in New York City. Um, yeah, other right. state cities are also wanting to do that or in the process of doing that um, because they're, uh, they increase risk for cardiovascular disease and they also are causative for fatty liver disease. That's been shown in the, in the medical literature. Now, for those listening who want to uh, call in and ask a question, the number is 818-495-6919, 818-495-6919. I want to take it to a Facebook question here. Um, this is from Will and Susan Revac. Um and their question is, what are the signs of liver congestion? Um, that's the first part. And then also, what regarding diet for liver, what's a, an optimal diet to support a healthy liver and what should they avoid? And you've, you've gone into a lot of this already, but anything that maybe you haven't mentioned? Well, actually, there is something I haven't talked about. There actually is some research looking at the Mediterranean diet. Um, the Mediterranean diet um, is an extremely therapeutic diet. Um, the reason it's called the Mediterranean diet is because a lot of the research was done in the Mediterranean where uh, the uh, historical diet is high in fruits, vegetables, olive oil, um, legumes, a whole variety of beans, whole grains, and small amounts of meat. And one of the interesting things about the Mediterranean diet <clears throat> is that in research, it actually has been shown to decrease steatosis in the liver. Um, therapeutically, it's used by a lot of physicians to help people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, unfortunately now, the diet of most people in the Mediterranean has been westernized, and there's a fair amount of sugar and white flour. But historically, the Mediterranean diet was um, pretty much devoid of uh, concentrated sugars, certainly devoid of high fructose corn syrup, and <laughs> excuse me, contained very little meat. And so... Um, 
that's what I ask my patients to transition to um, is a Mediterranean diet. The only difference, the main modification, is that you have to exclude alcohol. Now, remind me what the first part of that question was because I kind of took uh, it. Let's go back. It I answered a, it. Yeah, what are the signs of liver congestion? You. So uh, cholestasis is the medical term for liver congestion. It's very common in people who have chronic viral hepatitis, like chronic hepatitis C or chronic hepatitis B. But it's also found in other um, forms of liver disease and certainly in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, I have to uh, define that uh, in the in the more um, standard medical terminology, a hepatologist would not say that somebody with um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease had cholestasis because that's usually... Uh, it's it's usually conserved for somebody who's got very serious almost blockage of the bile duct, which is the main tube that that um, bile flows from the liver uh, down into the small intestine. But I've seen in patients who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease um, symptoms of cholestasis that manifest as um, sluggish digestion or constipation, um, headaches fatigue, um, when cholestasis gets uh, severe, um, there's a deposition of some pigment from the liver um, called bilirubin that gets deposited in the skin, and um, this is very common in patients who have chronic hepatitis C, they'll actually um, have very itchy skin um, as a result. That's when cholestasis becomes uh, fairly severe, and that can be seen in blood work. In other words, that can be diagnosed by looking at um, certain uh, aspects of lab work. But in terms of just um, the cholestasis that we might see in somebody who has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or NASH, um, it would manifest in the digestive tract, um, pretty sluggish digestion, um, constipation. Now, that doesn't mean that if somebody has that particular digestive problem, it's caused by there are lots of you know other reasons that somebody could have digestion uh, problems, certainly, but it's one of the ways that you'll see cholestasis show up in somebody with liver disease. Okay. And of course, when it gets really bad um, in someone who has cirrhosis, they um, they will have um, a serious medical condition um, and in an acute hepatitis as well. Sometimes the pigment of the eye will change to yellow. The whites of the eyes will will turn yellow because of the deposition of um, bilirubin. Okay. I wanted to ask a question, which is I'm going to cover more next week with the uh, cancer show that we're going to be doing with Dr. Lise Alshler. But um, for a, a patient who has fatty liver and you know it's progressing to fibrosis, do they have an increased risk for cancer? Yes. Um, once someone has reached cirrhosis, and this is one of the reasons why cirrhotics um, are more at risk for mortality, for dying, is because they have a serious increased risk for something called um, hepatocellular carcinoma, which is the kind of cancer that arises from the liver. Um, that won't happen if somebody just has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, 
But once they progress to what I spoke about before as NASH, the hepatitis form of fatty liver disease, then yes, they are at increased risk for um, hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, that risk is much lower than if they had chronic hepatitis from a virus, like chronic hepatitis B or chronic hepatitis C, but it is a complication of cirrhosis, and it, and it can be a risk factor for NASH. So the the obvious opportunity for somebody who has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is to reverse it before it ever gets to the NASH stage. Which again, what are the very best very ways to reverse it? You mentioned that the high fructose corn syrup to you know avoid that, avoiding the margarine. Right. I mean, it's it's important to really get to the cause. What are some other ways to reverse fatty liver disease? Well, the, there are um, the obvious things that I spoke about. Diet, um, exercise is extremely helpful. Uh, of not only avoiding continued exposure to toxins but um, getting adequate care if you do have a history of exposure. And again, one of the things I didn't mention is that both mercury and lead can be diagnosed by simple blood tests that any physician can do. The Environmental Protection Agency has a reference range for mercury of above 5 and for lead uh, of above 10. And so um, both of those are fairly good ways for people who are um, currently exposed to mercury and lead to be able to get that exposure assessed. Um, the other ways to address non-alcoholic fatty liver disease once it's diagnosed, in addition to that very crucial and important change in diet, is the use of antioxidants. I mentioned that vitamin E and vitamin C have both been shown in studies with people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease to actually improve not only the fibrosis in the liver but the deposition of fat as well. There have been other studies with, um, there's actually a pretty good study uh, using a botanical commonly known as milkweed thistle and uh, those of us who are trained in botanical medicine, those of us naturopathic physicians who, as part of our medical curriculum, we call it um, silabin, which is a form of milkweed thistle that is um, complexed or joined to a fat called phosphatidylcholine. There have been some really good studies with silabin. It is something, it's not a prescription drug, it's available over the counter. Um, in people with fatty liver disease, that shows that silabin acts as a very effective antioxidant particularly with people who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, there's another supplement that I use in my practice called uh, betaine or dimethylglycine, trimethylglycine. Um, this has also been used in a couple of different human studies with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, both of those studies showed that uh, the trimethylglycine or the betaine actually uh, decreased the amount of fat that was being stored in the liver and thus turning around the progression of fatty liver disease. Uh, betaine is something our own bodies make. You know, we make uh, the, the chemical name of betaine is, is uh, trimethylglycine or dimethylglycine. We make that in our livers, but some of us don't make enough. 
And so that um, that particular uh, natural compound or natural substance is very important in helping the liver work properly and preventing the deposition of fat in the liver. So there are uh, a whole host of antioxidants that are useful in fatty liver disease. Um, the ones I mentioned are just the ones that have actually been shown to be effective in in uh, human studies with um, with folks who have fatty liver disease diagnosis already. Got it. So I was see, that, did I answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, I see a caller um, from the 303. I, if you want to ask a question, go ahead and press 1. Just want to make sure you're not just calling in to listen. I don't want to catch anybody off guard. Um, Dr. Patrick, you mentioned about children. Um, how common is this in kids, and what can be done for a child? Non-alcoholic liver disease um, is an epidemic in our kids. It's a very, uh, it's of huge concern to me because I see it quite a bit. Um, it looks like, from the statistics that are current, about 10% of kids between the ages of two, and I really mean two years old, and 18 have fatty liver disease. That's six and a half million kids in this country. So pediatric, just like pediatric obesity is an epidemic, pediatric non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is also an epidemic. Um, and studies show that um, with simple interventions, you know, dietary changes, exercise, and the use of antioxidants like vitamin E, uh, pediatric non-alcoholic fatty liver disease can be reversed. But it's got to be diagnosed first. So I think in answer to your question, you asked me uh, this really important question uh, in the middle of the show, and I want to apply it to this population of, you know, our young people. <clears throat> Probably the most important change that anybody can make in their lives to prevent non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is to stop taking in high fructose corn syrup and stop allowing your kids to have it. It's a pretty simple thing, actually. It's something that we should all be doing, but it's probably the most, I'm going to say, powerful and effective intervention that we have access to is to actually, you know, high fructose corn syrup really just should not be in our diet. It's not a nutrient. Um, it actually acts not only as a sweetener but a food preservative, so it doesn't really serve any nutritive purpose, and it's clearly been shown to cause non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right, it's just not a food. So I think it's real food. important for yeah, all the yeah. parents out there to really get that, that they really need to make a serious effort to get high fructose corn syrup out of their kid's diet. Yeah. Um, one website I will throw out there is IATP.org. Um, that's the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. On their website, they have the full study and the full report looking at um, high fructose corn syrup in food and mercury in high fructose corn syrup. So it's a real easy way to get a hold of what foods have high fructose corn syrup in them right. at IATP.org. I'll definitely be checking that out. I have a caller on the phone lines. It's uh, from the 303. I'll go ahead and take this. Caller, are you there? I am. Thank you. Great. What's your name? Where are you calling from? 
Uh, Stephen uh, from Colorado. Um, I'm actually, uh, my wife was diagnosed with uh, fatty liver disease, and they didn't specify whether it was because uh, you keep referring to non-alcoholic, and I don't know if they call the other alcoholic uh, fatty liver disease. Um, drink uh, very lightly. Uh, I would say you know a glass of wine once or twice a week, that type of thing, and uh, you know maybe uh, a margarita sitting out on the patio, uh, you know, a couple times during the summer, that type of thing. And uh, her doctor told her, you know, that she should cut out uh, all alcohol. And, you know, we find that, uh, you know, you go out to a nice dinner, it's nice to have a glass of wine. And so don't know if that's something that is going to be a lasting thing, that she can never drink alcohol again, or uh, whether or not that even contributes to her particular uh, uh, fatty liver disease. I'm Wait, um, Stephen, I don't know if you were listening. Have you listened to the whole program? Yeah, I, I've, I've been listening. Yeah, I've been listening okay. uh, straight along, and I heard uh, a lot of what you said. I'm just uh, not positive with the. Because um, uh, it really wasn't defined. Yeah, for me as a physician, this is a difficult question to address because obviously your wife does not have fatty liver disease as a result of alcohol intake. You really, she as a female would need to be drinking more than um, one and a half drinks a day in order for her fatty liver to be the result of alcohol. So yeah. there's oh, clearly something. Right. There's clearly something else that's causing the fatty liver, and that needs okay. to be addressed directly. And it also needs Did to be treated. Okay. As a, as a follow-up of that, it, is this potentially a genetic link of some type to this condition? Um, you know, there's some potential. Uh, it hasn't been proven yet, but there's some potential that some of us, quite a few of us, who carry small uh, genetic boo-boos, I'm going to call them that because it's, we're not talking about a birth defect, um, in in an enzymatic process called methylation, it's adding a carbon and three hydrogens to, you know, it's a very basic process, um, are more at risk for heart disease. So that's a test that doctors do. Um, it's called the MTHFR test, and it just is a simple test for looking at that SNP. Um, we know that people who have that particular um, <clears throat> Uh, SNP is what the the reason I called it a SNP. It's just a, uh, a basically referring to a specific type of enzyme deficiency. It's a little boo boo, you know. It's not it's not the actual deletion of that enzyme. Um, and so those of us who are at greater risk for heart disease as a result of that may be at greater risk for fatty liver disease, but that hasn't been proven. In general, the large majority of people who have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease have some kind of etiological agent, meaning it's not genetic. It didn't fall out of the sky and hit us over the head. It's either as a result of some of the environmental toxin exposure I talked about, the University of Louisville study that Dr. Matt Cave did, which, by the way, is available uh, for anybody who wants to read it in full text. It's in the Environmental Health Perspectives Journal online. That's a, um, a medical journal that's free online in full text. If you just Google um, 
environmental health perspectives and Dr. Matt Cave's name, C-A-V-E, just like it's spelled, you can actually read his research. So it's either that kind of etiological agent or um, having a diet that's high enough in trans fats and high fructose corn syrup that um, either one of those agents, you know, diet or uh, toxic exposure or both together can initiate the process of the laying down of fat in the liver. So in answer to your question, there is some possibility that this little genetic SNP um, plays a role, but there's not enough evidence for me to say that conclusively. Um, it's going to take a lot more research to show whether that, that is involved or not. Okay. Thank you. Yes, that did. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. Thanks Appreciate for calling it. in. We'll have a glass of wine tonight. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. All right. I have another uh, caller here from the 508. Caller, are you there? Oh, looks like I'm here. Oh, oh great. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? My name's Lisa. I'm calling from Massachusetts. Hi. Welcome. What's your uh, question for Dr. Patrick? Thank you. Um, my question, I was wondering what your opinion is on the olive oil liver flushes and coffee enemas for detoxifying the liver and if you feel these things are safe. Um, sure, I can comment on that. Um, there actually has been a study um, with someone who was a patient who did a liver flush. Um, they took the small, round, oval, green um objects that came from that patient's intestinal tract and assayed them chemically, and uh, they were not gallstones. They were saponified olive oil, uh, meaning oh, that when olive oil mixes with bile salts, it turns into a soap. Um, you know, that's one of the ways that we make soap is olive oil and lye and a bunch of other chemicals. So <clears throat> uh, I know that in popular culture, um, it's it's uh, uh, at least uh, what's been communicated to me from my patients is that if you drink a bunch of lemon juice and olive oil, your uh, uh, bile duct will open up and your uh, gallbladder will release a bunch of gallstones. Um, I don't believe that to be the case. I don't. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that particular. Um, recipe of olive oil and lemon juice to somebody, particularly because if somebody does have gallstones, um, it's a little bit tricky because there are certain types of gallstones that can easily move into the bile duct and block the bile duct, and that can become a medical emergency. So um, doing things that are cathartic, you know, cathartic really just meaning you know, something that's going to irritate tissue and cause the expulsion of a bunch of stuff from the gallbladder, <coughs> excuse me, isn't necessarily an effective uh, way to uh, treat gallstones. You know, gallstones are kind of tricky and difficult to treat, and it takes a long time to treat them. Um, as far as a coffee enema goes, um, that particular technique is pretty much reserved for a very specific Mm, uh, protocol um, called the Gerson therapy that's used to treat cancer. Um, what we do know about um, that particular um, a coffee enema 
is that it does actually physiologically cause the gallbladder to contract and expel its contents. Um, and again, I wouldn't recommend it in somebody who has gallstones for the same reason that um, there's a potential for blocking the bile duct, and that could become a medical emergency. For somebody who doesn't have gallstones, um, you know, there hasn't been a whole bunch of medical research looking at the effects of coffee enemas. Um, they're certainly difficult, and um, the nausea that's um, produced as a uh, nervous reflex from doing a coffee enema isn't always enjoyable or pleasant. Uh, I think that the goal of doing a coffee enema, my understanding of it anyway, I'm, I'm not saying that I've used it in my practice, so I don't have an intimate knowledge of the, the actual um, long-term effects of somebody doing coffee enemas. But if the goal is to improve the flow of through the gallbladder, um, which I think it is, then the um, are you still there? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. here. Yeah. Uh oh. Oh, I think Dr. Lynn Patrick got disconnected. Dr. Patrick, if you're still there, call back six one nine. Actually, no, eight one eight four nine five six nine. One nine, Lisa, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay, great. Wait for her for a second to call back in. 818-495-6919. Her connection got a little shaky for a bit. Um, did she answer your question? You anyway? could probably answer this question. <laughs> yes. Sure. Could, a person could have gallstones and not be aware of that, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, so it's one of those things that you just wouldn't know. Let me. Oh, she's here. Let me just bring her back on the line. Dr. Patrick, are you there? Yes. Yeah, sorry, I don't know what happened. I just disappeared. Well, you're back. Here, but I'm back. <laughs> so the, to get, I was. I don't know where I got cut off, but I was basically just explaining if the goal, if the therapeutic goal is to improve bile flow, um, which is what those two therapies purport to do, there are safer ways to do that. Um, there's very good evidence with something called SAME, S-A-M-E. It's a popular supplement that's been used to treat uh, depression that SAME very effectively and very safely improves bioflow, as do many botanical medicines like um, milkweed thistle, the psilocybin I was talking about earlier. Curcumin will do the same thing. Um, I, it's less cathartic, but it's safer and it's easier. So that's my... You know, that's my medical opinion about that. Great. On milk thistle, can you make a tea from the seeds and get the same benefit, or would you need to take it as a supplement form? Um, it's the difficulty with both curcumin and salimarin is that they are metabolized by the liver and eliminated pretty quickly uh, and metabolized in the gut as well. The... Um, particular form of milkweed thistle I was speaking about earlier called psilocybin is milkweed thistle complexed with something uh, that you'd commonly know as a component of lecithin. It's called phosphatidylcholine. And in the studies, and this is a very, um, uh, this is done in Europe more commonly than it is in this country, um, research with botanicals. But in the studies with psilocybin in Europe, what they're finding is 
it's a way to get higher blood levels of milkweed thistle extract. It's actually an extract uh, for longer periods of time. So it's more effective. So certainly if you took the seeds and ground them up and made a tea, you'd actually have to grind them up and make a tea, you would, you would absorb the active ingredient. There's a bunch of them in milkweed thistle. It would go into your bloodstream, but it would probably pretty quickly leave your body. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, in terms of looking at the cost effectiveness of supplements, which I do all the time with my patients because, you know, my patients aren't millionaires. They have to very carefully think about how they're going to spend their health care dollars. Um, but still, you probably get more uh, effect out of something like psilocybin than you do out of buying the seeds and grinding them up and making a tea. You know, that's just my assessment from reading the studies about um, um, blood levels. Of, you know, you want to get the stuff to your liver. You don't want it to just uh, be absorbed and then excreted rapidly. You want to build up a nice, healthy dosage of psilocybin. So I think I think actually taking the complex form, which is called psilocybin, um, psilocybin complex, uh, it's available over the counter. Phosphatidylcholine plus psilocybin is a more effective way to do it, unless you have a free supply of milkweed thistle seeds. Mm-hmm. In which case, you know, you just have to do it, do a lot of them. But <laughs> that that would be the cost-effective way to do it for sure. Great. Did answer your question? Okay. Yes, it did. Thank you so much. Thanks for calling in. Have a good night. You too. Yeah, thank you. Oh, Dr. Patrick, I kept you so much longer than we agreed on, um, so I appreciate you spending That's extra okay. time with us. Yeah, it's, it's such an important topic, so I'm so glad useful. we're doing it. Yeah. I hope it was useful. Absolutely, absolutely. I learned a lot. I've, I've been sitting here taking notes. i got three pages of notes, so <laughs> I never stopped okay. learning myself. Great. Yeah. Is there anything Good. else that you wanted to um, share with our listeners, something maybe we haven't touched on? Um, that's an important question. What did I not talk about? Oh, vitamin D. Yeah, something very important. Um, as you know, vitamin D has been in the news a lot lately. 75% of the adult U.S. population is believed to be deficient in vitamin D. Um, in people who have been diagnosed with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, the more deficient they are, the more likely they are to have a worse case of fatty liver. Now, that isn't proof that taking vitamin D will cure non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but it certainly points in the direction of having normal vitamin D levels. So that's important. I forgot to mention that, and I think that's certainly a good point to end on, is that um, it's it's a good idea for everybody to get their vitamin D levels measured, and if they're deficient, to correct that deficiently, deficiency as uh, efficiently as possible and effectively as possible by taking uh, vitamin D. What range do you like to see on blood work for that, for the vitamin D test? Um, you know, the standard reference range is 30 and above is normal, um, but I like to see 50 and above in my patients. Um, I think that that's uh, from the cancer prevention trials. Uh, the cancer prevention trials show that a vitamin D level of 50 or above is 
uh, is more cancer preventive than 50 or below. So I think given that, um, you know, in a whole range of cancers, I think that that's a good healthy level is 50 or above. Got it. So important. Vitamin D is so low. Even in, even in sunny areas, it's crazy how deficient patients are, even in, even in San Diego. The Hawaiian studies show that clearly, that even if you live in Hawaii, you can be vitamin D, D deficient. Well, I have absolutely enjoyed my time with you, and um, unfortunately I have another meeting I have to go to. No, it's uh, fine. But, but I think that you are doing uh, a great service by um, having these discussions about um, conditions that are so important for people to know about and so preventable and, you know, not on the front page of the newspaper right. yet. They will be, but they're not yeah. yet. It will be, yeah, for sure. I, I so love being I, able to bring I, doctors like you to the public because they just don't know about you, and it's just it's it's such an honor to be able to you know provide that for people. Sure, and I am um, I am I have been asked. I'm being forced <laughs> to write a book about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Yay. So you'll see a book next year coming out. Yeah, awesome. We'll I, have I to have you back on the show and to do it. promote your. Yeah, we'll be able to promote your book when it's out. So that's that's great news. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, I will be. I will look forward to doing that. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Dr. Patrick, for coming on the show. You have a wonderful night and a great meeting, and we'll talk soon. You too, Dr. Noel. All right. Take thanks. care. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. That's our show. Dr. Patrick rocks. I'm such a huge fan. Thanks for uh, all the questions. Uh, let's see. We had, I think it was... Uh, Bill and Susan, Stephen and Lisa, I believe. Thanks for your questions. Uh, if you want to learn more about Dr. Patrick, check out DurangoNaturalMedicine.com. That's her site. Um, just a little bit of a recap. So if you were uh, missing some parts of the show, so if you want to um, just get screened for, for fatty liver, one of the signs is the ALT test. That's a liver enzyme. And uh, for women, you want that to be below, below 19 and for men, below 30. Um, and the different things that are shown in the research to increase the risk of fatty liver disease is high fructose corn syrup, um, trans fats, as well as, um, let's see, what else did we say here? I think it was um, free radical damage. So making sure to have those antioxidants in your diet is so important. Vitamin C and vitamin E and milk thistle are the ones in the research to show to be a uh, um, protective and, and actually reversing fatty liver disease. And it, it's an epidemic. 30% of adults have this. So this is not just something you see here and there. It's it's one in three adults have this. And something I learned tonight is that 10% of kids from 2 to 18 have this. That's 6.5 million kids. So parents, please, definitely don't let your kids drink the soda. It's not just, you know, just a, a sugary drink. It's actually harming their liver. So, um, you know, Give that, that, that honor to them and not, not hurting their livers and, and making sure they have those antioxidants in their diet. Um, because, you know, if, if this does progress to fibrosis, it actually does increase the risk for cancer down the line. So the best medicine is prevention. Um, next week's show, definitely mark your calendars. We'll be talking with Dr. Lise Alshuler, Natural Medicine for Cancer. So don't miss it. I'm out of here. Have a fabulous night. Dr. Lowe signing off. Bye. 
North Pole Hotline. Help! My in-laws are hosting Thanksgiving, and we're bringing the dressing. You mean stuffing? No, dressing. I need cute outfits for everyone. Get to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep, Old Navy's kicking off the holidays with stylish denim, velvet tops, the season's best dresses, and 40% off your entire purchase now through Tuesday. 40% off? We'll be stuffing our shopping bags full. And don't forget colorful sweaters and amazing outerwear, too. You can even buy online and pick up in store for free. Ooh, I love an all-you-can-wear buffet. Holiday your heart out at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1118 to 1120. Exclusions apply. See stores for details. North Pole Hotline, Mrs. Claus here. My holiday shopping list is so big, I can't wait for Black Friday. Get to Old Navy's biggest sale of the year starting tomorrow. Old Navy? Beat the crowds for 50% off your entire purchase. 50% off? Plus, this Friday only, Old Navy's famous cozy socks are just a buck in stores. Old Navy's giving $1 for every pair sold up to a million dollars to boys and girls clubs. So I can do good, look good, and get 50% off your entire purchase at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 1121 to 1123. Exclusions apply. See store for details. Cozy socks valid 1123 in stores only. Limit 10.